Welcome to episode 20 of the Swift Teacher Podcast. One lesson at a time towards... Swift World Domination. I have a special treat for you today. Uh, this episode is by special request to my guest and my mutual friend, Jim Harmon. So, hey, Jim, this one's for you. Because joining us today is Larry Reef. Larry is an English language arts and computer science teacher at Roslyn High School in Roslyn, New York. He was one of the first teachers in the country to pilot a full one-to-one iPad program with one of his classes and now leads professional development classes on tech implementation in the classroom. In the summer of 2017, so last summer, Larry became the coding instructor at the NJY camps in Milford, Pennsylvania. This school year, Larry is teaching a mix of freshman humanities, app development, and AP computer science principles. Boy, they sure are keeping your plate full, Larry. Uh, I, I like mixing it up. As an Apple Distinguished Educator and a Google Certified Teacher, Larry understands that 21st century students absorb and integrate information very differently than any previous generation. You can check out what he's doing in his classroom at www.mrreef.com and on Twitter at, at Mr. Reef. Well, Larry, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. So we'll get right into the questions because I know we'll have a lot of discussion. Uh, tell us more about Roslyn High School and what you teach. Uh, Roslyn High School, it's a great school on the uh, the North Shore of Long Island, about 1,300 students total. Um, originally, I've been working there for, now this is my 13th year there. I started out as an English language arts teacher. Um, love ELA. I'm, uh, I'm passionate about literature. I'm passionate about the arts. I'm passionate about the humanities. I'm especially passionate about Shakespeare. It's, it's, it's my love. When I first got exposed to the Apple Distinguished Educator Program, I was kind of focused very much on how technology can work in the English classroom. And uh, over the last few years, as I began to work with more and more of the technology, that began to kind of fascinate me a little bit more. So um, as Roslyn began to build up their, uh, their 21st century learning department, I, uh, I got on board with that. So while I'm still an English language arts teacher uh, at the school, we have this growing and robust 21st century skills program, uh, which app development and coding and all these great, great new programs that we have at our school fall under. So is that how you like got the bug for coding, you know, or your start or tell us about your journey? <laughs> well, well, yeah, it's kind of a funny story. I've always enjoyed coding. I've always enjoyed, well, uh, let me rephrase that. It's not that I've always enjoyed coding. I've always enjoyed technology. I've always enjoyed uh, computers and the internet. I've always been, been very fascinated by technology and I've always loved to see the way my students interact with technology. Through my work with Apple, I was exposed to their um, their curriculum, the Everyone Can Code curriculum. And I had toyed around with it a little bit and played with it, but I really, you know, never really dug into it that deeply. And, uh, well, kind of a funny story. Uh, last summer, I was visiting sleepaway camps with my oldest daughter. Uh, she decided she wanted to go to camp. And when I saw the price tag for some of these camps, I had a little bit of a sticker shock and uh, started discussing with the, the director of the camp they, uh, the possibility of, you know, they have a whole STEAM center there. And I would love to see, hey, do you guys have a coding program at your STEAM center? And they didn't. And they hired me to be the coding instructor. The, uh, the one downside to that was at the time, I really didn't know much about coding when I had pitched this program. But I knew that there were resources available to me. I knew there were things out there that I could kind of teach myself enough. And, and through people like you helping me out and other, uh, other Apple Distinguished Educators and, and the great curriculum that was available to me online, 
Over the course of about eight months, I, I really taught myself first to learn to code one, then learn to code two, then learn to code three. Uh, then I moved into the uh, intro to app development curriculum uh, that was available on in the iBookstore. And over the course of about eight months, I felt like I taught myself enough that, that I had gone from someone who had never really coded anything to a, a fairly decent novice coder. And uh, last summer, like I said, teaching it for six days a week, uh, eight hours a day, Really, I learned a lot working alongside the uh, the kids at that camp, and taught myself a lot to the point where now it's a, you know, I'm very comfortable teaching it in my in my high school setting. Um, have some great students. We just finished our first semester of app development, and I think it went really well. So you went from no computer science coding to teaching it and being comfortable teaching it in just a matter of months, right? All said, beginning to end about a year. But yeah, that, that's I never coded a day in my life to about a year later teaching it. Wow. And um, and, and I got to say, I, I, I had tried to teach myself before, but the, the materials that I think were finally available to me and learned to code on iOS really helped me to finally wrap my head around it and understand it and and give me the success that I think I needed to kind of push forward with it. I had tried to teach myself to code in the past as more of a hobby, and I would eventually get frustrated and give up and move on to something else. And what I liked about playing with the learn to code stuff, you know, walking myself through it was I never found myself getting so frustrated with it that I wanted to walk away from it. It was always kind of pulling me in and making me want to learn more. So, um, yeah, I definitely credit that curriculum with, with preparing me to, to, to not only learn it, but then to teach it. So in episode eight, Fraser Spears said the curriculum is so good, a teacher would really have to work hard to screw it up. Do you agree or disagree? Absolutely. No, I absolutely agree with that 100%. It, it, it's so self-guided. And so, especially like I said, learn to code one, two, and three, you're learning as you're doing it. That little guy, uh, bite as he jumps around that screen at first, you feel like a playing, you're playing a game, and then a half hour later, and you know, two puzzles later, you realize, wow, I'm learning stuff. It's not just playing a game, and you'd have to really try hard to not learn while you're going <laughs> through that curriculum, because it really just—it's so much fun that you just absorb it as you're doing it. It's great. Wow, it sounds like you've had a really great experience, and it is similar to other ones. Carlos Garcia Garcia from Valencia, Spain, had the same experience. Went from no coding to coding completely in writing playground books in nine months. So if you're out there and you're a teacher and you're just not sure, I don't know that I can do this. doesn't matter what grade, kindergarten through 12th, if you're willing to put in a little bit of time, you can do it. Absolutely. I would agree with that 100%. Well, you've taught English before. So now you've had a semester of teaching um, computer science and coding. What is your favorite part of teaching computer science or, and coding? To be honest, my favorite part of teaching it now is bringing some of it back into the ELA classroom. The idea that now that I've learned more about coding and I've learned more about computer science, uh, I'm beginning to look at coding as as a new literacy. I actually presented on this at NCTE uh, last November, the National Council of Teachers of English. Uh, the idea that we should start to look at coding as a 21st century literacy. If we go back and we look at you know the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, what separated the haves from the have-nots was the ability to read and write, the ability to be literate. And if you can read and write, you probably got a job in some office somewhere where you were copying documents, something like that. If you couldn't read or write, you probably ended up in a much more hazardous job where you, you know, again, might lose a hand or a leg or get some horrible disease from breathing horrible fumes in a factory. So literacy was, was really a matter of life and death. And you know, we looked at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. I don't think it's as drastic today, but when I look at 
it just the skills my own kids need. I have a seven-year-old and an eleven-year-old, and I think about the skills that they're going to need in another fifteen years to get you know really gainful employment, and those skills are going to lie in, in in what they learn when they learn coding. Maybe not coding itself, but the, those ideas of problem solving, collaboration. Coding teaches them, in my opinion, the skills that they're going to need in the next twenty or thirty years. It is the new literacy. I couldn't agree more. I tell my students there are uh, three kinds of people in the world: people who know technology and can use it effectively, people who pay those people in that first group, and then the third group being people who make a lot of money making software for the people in the first two groups. So <laughs> couldn't agree more. How, Absolutely true. How did, uh, how did, how was that taken at NCTE when you're telling them, oh, no, 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 this is the new literacy. Everybody needs to learn it. How'd that go over? It was a little weird. I got to be honest with you. When we looked, I was talking with one of the other, um, one other like-minded person that I kind of bumped into at NCTE. And we were talking about how when you look through the uh, the description of all of the the presentations, only one of them, there was only one presentation in the entire catalog that mentioned the words computer science. Hmm. And we were, we were talking about how that, that's really got to change. So we're actually working on some presentations for next year about incorporating more computer science into the English curriculum, about how, how kids, the same skills that we want them to learn in our ELA classrooms are the same skills we can teach them through coding. Wow, that's great. From what I've seen, and there's Dr. Penny and his group out at Westchester University have really taken a look at what kind of people make good coding teachers. And what they're finding is, is that it's not math and science teachers that make the best coding teachers and the best coders. I know that at um, Jamf Nation User Conference and other places, they have mentioned that some of their best developers have are musicians and artists. And I would say probably also ELA teachers, because you guys, it's a language. You're learning the language and you can see the big picture, whereas math and science people, sometimes we get bogged down in the details. I, uh, when I was at NCT, I was talking with uh, Dr. Sugar, who uh, also at Westchester University. Yeah, he's and, part of uh, that group. Yeah, Jordan. and he was... Yep, and he was telling me that that I believe part of their study, I don't want to misquote him, but that they said that people who were more adaptive to learning coding tended to have uh, higher verbal SAT scores than they did uh, math scores. So that people, yeah, I, th I thought that was really interesting. It is. So that's a what we would call that a tease for an upcoming episode. Tell us about your teaching experience at uh, the summer camp last summer with your daughter and all the other campers. Oh, it was great. The, uh, the camp... Um, they had never had a program like this before, and uh, the director of the camp, he loved the idea. He went all in. Uh, the camp purchased. It's a not-for-profit camp, so it was it was very, you know, kind of really a push for them to purchase uh, six iMacs and 12 iPads for me. Set up a whole area where I would meet with, in the morning, I would have what they called specialty camp, which were campers who I would meet with for about four hours a morning every day for a week. And then in the afternoons, I would have kids who I would only meet with for one hour for maybe two two days at a time or three days at a time, depending on they have kind of a rotation in their activity cycle. So sometimes I would get them for two days, sometimes I would get them for three. So I really had to come up with a variety of activities, things for kids who had never coded before, things for kids. I was dealing with ages anywhere from first grade all the way up to 11th grade. So <laughs> wow. I, I, I was having kids who were coming in who had never 
coded before. I was having kids who were coming in who were telling me, oh, I have a ton of uh, experience coding. I've done plenty of coding. And then I would kind of get them set up on Xcode. And, so, and they told me that most of their experience with coding was from scratch, which isn't a bad thing, but it's kind of, you can't make that jump right from scratch to Xcode. No. Um, you know, and some of the kids that came in had already taken, you know, some of my older kids had already taken things like intro to Java and were already coding circles around me within the first few days. Hmm. So it was a matter of kind of coming up with different activities for different kids on different days. So, but it really taught me a lot about, you know, kind of mini projects and how to build short little apps in just a couple of days. The the idea that I, I found that once a kid discovered they could build something, it made them want to build more. Once they had that success and they got, they, they ran an app in a little simulator, or once they got Byte to grab that little gem at the end of the puzzle... That made them hungry for more. And, and I, I was the same way when I was learning it. So those those kids that really challenged you, because I think a lot of teachers are afraid to look like they don't know. So those kids that were really good, and I've had a few of them, how did you handle that? It, at first, I got to be honest, at first I tried to kind of pretend as if they were, oh yeah, I was not a lot. Oh yeah, I see what you're doing here. I see, And I honestly had no clue some of the stuff they were doing. And after a while, I figured, you know what, swallow my pride, ask some questions. And I found the more questions I asked, the more they were willing to, oh yeah, and you can do this too, and you can do that. Like the minute I showed them that I had an interest and that I wanted to learn something, they were so happy to teach. And it wasn't a... You know, it wasn't a, oh, I can't believe you don't know this. It was more of a, oh, my God, let me show you what else I know. Like, they wanted to impress me. They wanted to show me what they could do. And uh, and they did. Yeah, it's really empowering for my students they, if they do something. Because some will have some experience in, in uh, they're doing game stuff in our lab. That's the other part of what they do in Unity, and that's uh, C++. And they'll ask me, oh, you know, have you ever, do you, do you look at this? I'm like, I don't know any C++, but it's an object-oriented language if you want to show me a little bit about it. Super empowering for them to be able to do that. Plus, you know, I share with them, I said, listen, coding is the one subject in this computer science where you're going to fail a lot. And that's probably a good thing because when you make these mistakes once, twice, three times in your code, you're going to learn and you're not going to do it again. So that's one of the things I really love about teaching coding and doing it is that it's the like one of the few subjects where you can be expected to fail, and that's a good thing. And that's what I love about bringing coding over into my ELA classroom because too often I think students are afraid to – I don't want to use the word fail, but they're afraid to make mistakes in their writing. And you know, I'll ask a student to write an essay, and some of my more insecure students will come up to me every five minutes. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? They're afraid to make a mistake. They equate, oh my God, if I make a mistake, I'm going to get a bad grade, and that bad grade's going to follow me, and I'll never get into college, and my whole life's going to go down the toilet right now. And, and I encourage them that, no, it's all about making mistakes. So the same, the same process that, that coders bring to writing code I've tried to bring over to the writing process. The idea that it's okay to have mistakes in your writing. That's why we have beta testers. Uh, or you know, that's what we call proofreaders in my classroom. We don't do proofreading. We beta test our writing where we show it to other other users before the end user, me, gets to see it. So by bringing that, that mindset, that coding mindset over to writing, understanding that everything in a sentence is in there for a reason. The same way when you write code, everything that's in that code is in that code for a reason. You know, if I would ask my students, um, if they're writing an essay, where should you put commas? Some of the kids will tell me, well, you, you put a comma wherever you think there should be a pause. And they say, well, can you do that when we're writing code? Can you just put a comma wherever you think a comma is supposed to be? 
No, of course not. That'll throw off all of your code. Well, it's the same when you're writing an essay. So it's that same mindset of you've got to, you're going to make mistakes, but you've got to go back and you have to revise. And once you revise, guess what? There's still going to be mistakes. And you have to go back and you revise again and again and again until it works the way you want it to work. It's the same whether you're writing code or whether you're writing an essay. I love that idea of bringing that computer programming mindset into the English classroom. I'm going to share that with my English teaching colleagues, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Happy to share. I, I, that is, that's fantastic because you really, you know, you know, that rough draft, that very first revision, whether it's an outline or whatever, that could be your um, alpha or even your proof of concept. So when you, you know, when you develop software, there are different steps. You know, there's a proof of concept where you're just lie, setting it out. And then there's alpha version that's barely working. And then beta version where you use testing. And then the release version of the software or gold, Apple calls it Goldmaster. <laughs> and that that's a version that's ready to go into the public. That's, that's fantastic. I can't wait to go see my colleagues tomorrow and, and talk to, well, a few of them that would be receptive to it. Are you teaching Swift on iOS, on Mac, or both? I'm doing it on both. I actually, again, I can't take credit for this. I, I got the idea from your podcast. I'm trying to remember which episode it was, but the idea of initially when I had planned this course, I had planned on just doing it on uh, Xcode, entirely on Xcode, following the intro to app development curriculum like the Bible. And then I remember hearing on one of the episodes that, that one of your guests mentioned that he would use the Swift Playgrounds for iOS as almost a supplement for what he was doing with Xcode. So if he were teaching something like um, variables in Xcode, you know, for homework or if they had downtime in between play in between Xcode playgrounds, okay, now work on it in the Swift playgrounds as kind of a supplement to it. But I kind of went about it the opposite way. I, I started out with the Swift playgrounds. Um, my app development class, when, again, this was the first year we ran it, there were no prerequisites. Anybody in the school could sign up for it, whether you had a ton of programming experience or none whatsoever. So we needed kind of a common place to start, and I found Swift Playgrounds for iOS were a great place to start to introduce concepts for kids who had no idea what they were. And then from that, we would move into those same concepts in Xcode. All right. Well, you know, Swift <laughs> Teacher Podcast, helping out tens of people. <laughs> no, that's been a great resource to me. Good. It really has been. A lot of the ideas in my classroom I'm getting from, from you and your guests. Good, good. What tools are you using to teach coding in your classroom? Specifically, what software? And you could even talk about hardware if you want. In, well, again, if we're talking about my classroom, in my uh, app development classroom, we're using MacBooks. Uh, every one of my students, we have a MacBook cart. So it's not really, it's one-to-one -one MacBook, but they don't leave with them. We leave them in the room. And each student in my school, we're a one-to-one -one school. So they come in with their own iPad that they have throughout the entire day. But when they're in app development, they have access to a, a MacBook Pro that they use Xcode on. In my ELA classroom, again, all of my students have iPads. So we're using Swift Playgrounds for iOS, but what we're doing a lot of stuff in with Swift Playgrounds for iOS is the, um, I guess it would be the blank. Um, within Swift Playgrounds for iOS, you have all of the different games you can play with Byte, and then you have the little accessories you can do with Lego Mindstorms and all of that. And then there's one area where it's just, you can do graphs, you could do, there's blank, I'm, I'm trying to remember what it would be called. Those are all the templates. The template, yeah. exactly. So, so what I'll have my, my ELA students do is we're using those templates a lot. And we're using them in two different ways. Um, one way we're using them both for conditional code, where I'll have my students. We recently, for example, finished the uh, the Greek tragedy Medea. So I had my students when we finished Medea, they had to then create a virtual version of Medea in one of those templates. 
So Medea would ask the user questions, and within those questions, there's textual evidence, there's um, references to characterization in the in the play. There, there's direct connections to the play, but depending on how the user answers those questions, Medea gives you different responses. So Medea may ask you, do you think it was right what Jason, my husband, did to me when he left me? If you say yes, Medea will give you one response with textual evidence. If you say no, she gives you an entirely different response with textual evidence. And it continues to branch out based on user responses, but it always comes back to the text. Uh, the other way we're using it is I've having my students, I don't know if you remember, but one of my favorite things from my youth was the, uh, the old choose your own adventure stories mm -hmm. where, you know, if you want to go into the cave, turn to page 47. If you don't want to go into the cave, turn to page 180. I'm having my students write stories like that. But again, using those templates and conditional code, they're kind of creating choose your own adventure stories. So there's a writing component, but there's also a coding component. What templates are you trying with your, um, are you trying any like for supplemental for your app development students, like the Cypher one? My students really, they like that one. Again, when we have some downtime or, you know, those, they'll play with that, but that's more of something they'll kind of play around with than anything I've built any assignments around. Oh, okay. So, but, uh, you know, the, although now that you mentioned, I would like to get my, my, um, my AP computer science students. We were just talking about Caesar ciphers and stuff like that. So maybe I'll get them playing with that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. That yeah, my students yeah. really enjoyed that one. Since we know each other, and I know that you have previously taught English, I know that Swift is your first bite at the apple as far as teaching a programming language. How do you think it compares to other tools that you have seen just in your own experience in trying to learn code? The very fact that I could sit down myself and learn it, that I didn't need someone else to teach it to me, that you know the syntax was so straightforward and so simple that you didn't have to... I compare it to learning a new language. Um, it's a lot easier to go from English to Dutch, believe it or not. They're very closely related languages. So if you wanted to learn Dutch, it's not that difficult to learn Dutch if you're already very fluent in English. Um, it would be much more difficult to go from English to, say, Korean, because now you're talking about a completely different language with a completely different alphabet. To me, learning Swift was like going from English to Dutch. Any time I tried to teach myself Java or Python or these other languages, I felt like I was going from English to Korean. It felt like at a certain point I was just completely lost. When, when I was using Swift, I never felt that way. I always felt like what I was looking at, I could understand. I never felt overwhelmed by what I was looking at. So that was one of the major goals of Chris Latner and the group that created Swift was they wanted to make it a very expressive language, meaning it's easy to read. And I think that that is really helpful for our students. And I think that's what makes it the best teaching language for K-12 is that when you look at a line of Swift code, you know, partially because of the syntax that they've, they've taken out a lot of the cruft and the extra punctuation and stuff. But when you look at it, you can really, it reads like it, to me, it reads like a, a, an English sentence. I mean, what do you think as an ELA teacher? Is that, am I making sense? Is that? Absolutely. I, I tell my students all the time that you can, same as an essay. I can, I, when I look at your essay, I want to know why every sentence is where it is and why you've put that there and why you've chosen those words. And I can read and kind of understand that. And I find Swift is very much that same way that I can look through something written in Swift 
And I may not know what it does when I first look at it, but if I sit there and I read through it, okay, this part of the code you know, is the user interface. This part of the code is going to pull in information. This part of the code is going to output it. And slowly through looking at it, I can figure out what it's going to do. Um, again, without having a ton of training, without, you know, again, I've tried to do that with Java, and it feels like I'm not just looking at another language, but I'm looking at another alphabet, for me at least. Yeah, no, I've, I've created Java apps. No, you're right on the money. Yeah, it's, it's a whole lot of no fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was actually Mike Yak who showed me the example of, you know, to print Hello World in Swift versus printing Hello World in Java. <laughs> and it, it's, it, it's night and day, you know, to print Hello World in Swift, you said print, you know, Hello World. That's it. It's done. <laughs> what could be more straightforward than that? Yeah, Java was. It's what three lines? I think. I don't. Know. Oh, it's, it's stuff that I don't even understand why it's in there. And what has been most surprising to you in teaching Swift this year, either at the camp or at your high school? The enthusiasm, the desire. I find kids are so. This is something they want to learn. It, it's they're they're choosing to learn this. It's nothing that's kind of being forced on them. I I sometimes feel not all the time, but in my ELA classroom that kids are in ELA because it's a graduation requirement. I find when it comes to coding, kids are there because they have a dream, they have an idea, they have something in their head that they want to get out there. They want to create it. And I say the first day of class, the way we started out, and I do this with the kids at uh, the camp, the specialty camp over the summer, the kids that I meet with for a week straight, the very first thing we do is we spend some time talking about what would your perfect app do? If you had a dream app, if you could make an app that could do anything, what would it do? And never once does a kid say, you know what, give me a minute to think about that. Every time, all of the kids start talking right away, which to me tells me this is something they've been thinking about. This isn't something that this is the first time they're approaching this idea. All of these kids have an idea. The only thing that stopped them from executing that idea is the skill. And what, what I found most surprising was the way the kids just wanted to dive in and create once they had that skill. It, it said it made them hungry for more. Once they would have you know, little victories and they'd figure out, yes, I can do this, they wanted more. And it was never, you know, my, my app development class, never once did a kid ask me, how are we being graded on this? You know, what, what, what's a grade on this project going to be? I told them, I don't care about, you know, the grade on the project. What I care is that you didn't know this before we started. Now that we're done with it, tell me what you do know. Give me a reflection on it. And they would have to kind of keep a reflective blog about what they had learned through the process. And never once was I questioned about how are we going to be graded on this. The grade suddenly ceased to become important and it was more about the knowledge and wanting to create something, wanting to build something they were passionate about. Yeah, I think maybe that's what, you know, because I've been trying to wrap my head around this for a while. You know, what makes Swift and what we're having, why why are we having success with it? I mean, my students have, it sounds like your students have, I know Fraser's students and Mike's student, Mike Yak's students, and you know uh, Chris Barnaby, his students, all of them, they're, they're having success. And I think maybe what it comes down to is that, you know, they made a very expressive language that's easy to read, but then the instructional designers have done a great job in creating materials that allow kids just like you have said, little victories. So then that they get motivated, they don't get discouraged, where a lot of the other resources, including some of the crap I created, they don't get those little victories. And so <laughs> they go for so long and they're just like, whatever, I'm done. And then they move on to something else. This always keeps pulling them back before they can move on to something else I found. Swift, again, it's not, 
it's not um, what's the word I'm looking for here. It, you know, I always viewed coding, and I think a lot of people view coding as some sort of mystical, almost magical skill that only wizards can handle. <laughs> Hocus and, pocus. Exactly, and I think I think once you sit down and you start looking at Swift, it kind of it, it's like pulling back the curtain, and you realize, wow, this isn't nearly as difficult as I thought it was going to be. And that's what, again, what I found interesting about Swift was that it took something that I used to think was something only people that had years of, you know, computer science study at MIT were capable of doing. And wow, even an English teacher from Long Island can do this. <laughs> that, that, yeah, it really did open my eyes. I don't know, but I think I, now I have the title for this episode. <laughs> even an English teacher from Long Island can do this. <laughs> so simple, even I can handle it. Yeah. Yep, thanks. You just that. That, that pretty much set that up. How have your students responded to learning Swift this year? It's been a mix, I'll be honest. Some of them, the ones who have no programming experience whatsoever are loving it. Uh, they're coming in, they're soaking it up like a sponge, they're learning. The students that have taken things like Intro to Java, they're coming in and I think they're finding it a little frustrating for them. I think for some of them, they feel like it's a step backwards. And I also feel like you know, they ask me questions about, well, I want to do this in Java. How do I do it in Swift? I, I'm honest with them. I say, guys, I don't really, un I don't know how to do that in Java. I could show you how we could try to do it in Swift, but I don't necessarily know how to do what you're doing in Java. So, that, but why don't you show me? Let's walk through it, and it becomes a really great learning experience for me. But as far as students taking a Swift, like I said, the ones who have no programming experience absolutely love it. Uh, the ones who do have some programming experience, there's been a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a, a pushback, but you know, I prefer to do things with Java, or they feel like I've been moving a little too slowly sometimes, like with the Swift students, and they just kind of want to move forward and make stuff. And make, I think that's the problem with, with teaching computer science is that, and this is what I'm still learning, I guess, as a new computer science teacher, is that I'm getting kids in my room with all different sets of skills. And I've got to learn how to work with, I mean, it's differentiated instruction, but on a totally different level that I've never been used to before. It's funny that those those students that have had some experience with uh, real programming language like Java have this pushback against Swift. I feel like in the actual developer community, there's some similar feelings with developers who are Objective-C developers who, well, Objective-C can do this and Objective-C can do this. And why do I need to learn Swift? And, you know, Objective-C just does that fine. There are some people who are almost people in the Objective-C development community who is who are almost a little bit belligerent towards Swift. I mean, like openly hostile. They don't want to learn it. They don't feel like they need to because it's different. And Objective-C does these all these other like method. One thing they, they talk about method swizzling, which I, I understand a little bit. But you know, I, I that just when people start talking that way, I just OK, well, I, I'm teaching kids and the next generation. This is this is the programming language they're going to use. So yeah. That's exactly my attitude towards Swift. And, and I tell some of my students this, they're like, why are we learning Swift when we should be learning? This is this is to kind of, uh, you know, see, this is where we're going. So I can understand you, you know, C++ and, and, and all the, you know, the older object-oriented languages, that's where we've been. But this is, kind of, Java's where we've been. This is where we're going. So it's great that you know Java, but it's kind of like learning how to work on... Uh, a car from the 1950s before you work on a car from the you know from the year 2000. It, the principles are all pretty much the same, but it's much easier. It's much more streamlined to work on a car now than it was. The, I mean, does that make sense? Does the analogy make sense? <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if that makes like the idea that that 
you're still working on a car, but it's changed. It's much more streamlined. It's much easier now than it was 50 years ago. That's kind of the way I look at Swift versus Java. Java gets the job done, but Swift gets it done a lot more easily in a way that I can understand. Have you had any of your AP science, like I'll get students who are like, well, I'm not a fan of Apple and I like Java and uh, I really just, I'm not interested in learning that any of the Apple languages. And I look at them like, so let me get this straight. You're going to spend this time in here learning some computer science and then maybe go to college and learn some more computer science. And if a company says to you, we're going to offer you this job and all of this money, but we want you to use this other language, you're going to tell them no? Well, also the idea of what's the most popular platform in the world right now? iOS. There's more iOS devices in the world than any other platform. Why would you want to develop for any other platform, and if you're going to develop for that platform, you might as well use Swift. I mean, why would you use something else to develop for that platform other than the language that that company developed? It just doesn't make sense to me to use anything else personally. But Well, the most, the most frequently or the most used language in the world right now is JavaScript because it runs the web. So right. you can do a lot with JavaScript. I mean, but you're not creative native apps. And that's really, you know, I think we're in agreement that that native apps is where the game is going to be. Yeah, the web's not going away, but you need to have be able to do both. And I hate to put it in, in financial terms. I think of it more in terms of when we look at Apple's everyone can code um, push. The idea that when we look at some of the, the, the less fortunate communities in America, coding is a way out of poverty. Learning to code is, is a ticket to a career, and you know, learning to code Swift is, is learning to code in a language where you can develop an app that can change the world, that can change your life. When, when you and I were in Germany together, and we met, oh, I'm trying to remember his name, but that, that young man who he had to be 20, 21 years old who had developed that math app. And he was, he was a millionaire by the age of 20 or 21 based on an app. That, to me, tells me that this is the kind of thing that if we can get our kids learning how to do this, they, you know, there's that incentive of you know, learning how to program is a key to creating something that can change your life, change the world and change your life at the same time. And again, I think that goes back to what we were talking about before. I think that's where the incentive lies for these kids. And to me, the, the way to pull them in is with Swift. I think if we, show, if we try to just put kids right into Java – we're definitely get some great programmers, but I think we're going to scare away a lot of kids. <laughs> yeah, we're going to scare away more than we engage. Exactly. I think when you show them Swift, and especially when you introduce them to something like you know Swift Playgrounds for iOS, they don't even realize they're learning to code until they're done with Learn to Code too. They think they've been playing a game this whole time. So I think it's kind of a, we don't want to scare them away. We want to pull more kids into coding, and I think Swift definitely attracts more kids than say if they looked at job i think java scares a lot of kids away i think swift attracts a lot of kids my 11th graders we just now that we're in the second semester we left the swift playgrounds app and now we're on our max and in xcode doing intro into app development they're like, oh mr foudy this is so much better and uh, this is because this is like real programming we're on a computer and everything and then so we're going through one of the, i forget which playground it was yeah maybe the fourth or fifth and uh oh no it was string interpolation and we were doing that on strings and somebody made a comment about something i'm like oh where did you learn that oh well i learned that in last semester in the swift playgrounds app oh so that was real programming and then they sheepishly were like oh yeah well i guess and yes for everybody out there full disclosure uh larry and i were in germany together we had a little lunch right by the where the uh, berlin wall was uh a year ago last summer it was good times good 
Good times. Good times. What suggestions do you have to any teacher or school district that is considering starting to teach coding or programming with Swift? Um, I hate to sound like an Apple fanboy. I know people accuse me of it, but those cor- Apple has so much great material that's available for someone who's who's never taught coding before. Um, like you and I were saying earlier, someone would have to try real hard to not be successful with this material. Uh, between Learn to Code 1, 2, and 3 on the uh, the iBookstore, the Intro to App Development Curriculum, just the plain app development curriculum, there is something out there that Apple has put together that can be an incredible resource for you in your classroom. Um, so so my advice to any teacher or district that's, that's starting out with this is check out what's already out there. There are some great, great materials and, and lean on them and, and Social media is another great tool. If you're first getting involved in coding, uh, there's a lot of teachers on Twitter who, that if you reach out with a question, are more than willing to help you out. Uh, so definitely be you know, be willing to ask questions on social media and, and admit what you don't understand. Isn't that interesting? You know, as we we're talking and you're just as you were just talking, I was thinking about how those materials are so good that a teacher could just pick them up with no experience and get going. And all those materials are at no additional cost. They're free. So a teacher doesn't have to spend years or months creating materials or finding materials or anything like that. Show me where on a Chromebook you where those materials are. And that's really some of the unwritten costs of of using a device like a Chromebook. I, I know there are stuff out there and I know Go is a is a language they could do and Java is a language. And you could go to Code Academy and do JavaScript on your Chromebook and that's there, but that Code Academy JavaScript course, if you really want to get to the pro levels, is twenty bucks a month. So those are some of the hidden costs. Not only that, but how about your time as a professional? How much time you have to spend researching and coming up with stuff? Hey, I think I, I got it. I'm just talking myself into another blog post. Way to go, Brian. <laughs> talking about as if I didn't get enough negative reaction last spring to my Chromebook VIPad uh, article. But uh, honestly, the amount of time that you don't have to put in finding stuff, you can just, here's the curriculum. It's all laid out for me. It's been set up with. There's even keynote decks built right into the curriculum. So you don't even have to start writing keynote decks from scratch. You have them in there. Yeah, very good point. But at the end, they go over all of the um, computer science and the AP standards. You know, those they've, they've, they've taken, they've done the work to, to align and coordinate what standards are covered for computer science and honestly they they couldn't have made it any easier to teach coding again as someone who's never taught it before not only did i use this material to teach myself but now i'm using that same material to teach others and it's it's so easy and it's so straightforward it walks you through every step of the process that i i can't understand why a district would do anything but this because again it's already there for you why reinvent the wheel well said. Are you a fan of podcasts? I love podcasts. It's pretty much all I listen to uh, are podcasts. I, uh, so what are it. some of your favorites? <laughs> well, if we're going to talk about my favorite educational podcasts, of course, I love Swift Teacher. Um, big fan of Kelly Croy's podcast, Wired Educator. Uh, Cult of Pedagogy, big, big uh, podcast that, again, as far as educational podcasts, um, I love the Shakespeare Unlimited podcast. Anything related to Shakespeare, I'm going to get sucked into. And then there's a whole bunch of weird kind of entertaining podcasts that I love listening to that uh, I don't know if they necessarily apply here. That's all right. Throw out one. <laughs> uh, Dumb People Town. 
Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Dumb People Town. It's a, a podcast by the Sklar Brothers, two comedians, where they focus on news stories. For some reason, a lot of them that tend to come out of Florida, um, <laughs> people, they, they, they always say that in the podcast. Um, it's not me picking on Florida. It's them. Uh, and, and it just kind of focuses on people doing things that you just wouldn't, you know, again, finding those weird news stories and kind of uh, improv comedy based around those news stories. Very funny stuff. Uh, highly recommend it. All right, dumb people town. I will definitely check that out. Oh, and reply all. Actually, reply all is a much better podcast that I would recommend. Reply all. Okay. Reply all. Yeah. Who does that one? Um, I know it's done by Gimlet Media. I'm trying PJ Vote. I believe is one of the hosts, but it's it's kind of like if you enjoy This American Life, imagine This American Life, but focused very much on the internet and technology. Okay. All right. So similar to Hello Internet. Which, yes. Uh, where can people find you and your work online? Uh, I'm all over Twitter at, at Mr. Reef, at M-R-R-E-I-F-F, and my website, MrReef.com, www.M-R-R-E-I-F-F.com. Uh, best way to keep up on what I'm doing. All right. And uh, Larry won't mention it, but he was featured in an Apple uh, teaching with iPad video. I will put the link to that in the show notes. You should definitely check that out and how he teaches Romeo and Juliet. Um, really interesting. I wish I would have had that. Um, all, all we got to watch was the movie at the end. Uh, it's always a compliment when people say, like, again, I, I, it's my favorite thing to teach. I love Romeo and Juliet. And how about a, a pro tip, a, a teaching Swift pro tip? Do you have one for us? Huh. Oh, I got a great one for you. Okay. Um, when your students say, hey, Mr. Reef, can we update the software right now real quick? Say no. <laughs> yeah. Because I've learned the hard way that when you say yes, you can lose three days of class time. Oh. Because <laughs> this needs an update. Now this needs an update. Now that needs an update. Now Xcode needs an update. And, oh, and it becomes a nightmare. So, yeah, never allow the students to do updates. That's my pro tip. Yes. Yeah, so, or have them start it right before the school day ends, and then it'll be ready in the morning. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's a great pro tip, too. If you'd like to find the show notes for today's episode, you can find them at swiftteacher.org slash podcast. I hope you have enjoyed the episode. And if so, maybe you'll consider joining us in the Swift Teacher Slack channel. There'll be a link in the show notes. You just tap or click the link. It'll take you right to Slack where you can sign up. A lot of great discussion that goes on there. And you can ask questions of anybody in the community. We have a, a vibrant and growing community. And it's a great place to get questions uh, answered. Larry, thank you for taking the time to join us today and share your insight. It was really fun. Thank you very much for having me. This is great. A lot of fun, Brian. Thank you. And I will talk to you soon. Time to get Swifty.